0: Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. With the goal of educating and empowering women, each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi friends and welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. Before we get started, I just want to give a quick disclaimer. I try really hard in this podcast to make sure that the quality and the sound is as best as possible, but in this upcoming episode, my kids are not quite in agreement with that statement. I apologize to everybody who hears kid noise throughout this. I know it can be distracting and I also know that's really not fair if you're struggling with infertility, to hear my kids in the background. Just remember that I have been where you are. These were my pregnancies five and six, meaning one through four never made it to a baby. I appreciate you guys so much for understanding, and let's get on with the episode. Today we are talking about the semen analysis and sperm health and male fertility. So often, I have people who come to my office and they say, I know it's not him, just test me he doesn't want to do a semen analysis. That's too embarrassing. I don't want to go down that road. Just fix me. One, I hate this. Why are so many women ready to just take the blame for everything when we know that a male factor contributes 30 to 50% of the time when it comes to infertility, a huge either isolated or overlapping male factor. This means that we should be testing a semen analysis in anybody who makes sperm if you're having trouble conceiving, or if we have other issues that we know are going to make it difficult. Too often, I also see people come to my office who have been told their semen analysis is normal, and it's not. Somebody just quickly looked at it, and as the individual who is reviewing the report, the patient, you may not know what is normal and what is not. So let's break down what this semen analysis is, what it is I want you to know about sperm health, so that you can be more empowered to make decisions. Before we dive into that, we are going to talk about this week's Fertility in the News, and that is a very interesting study that just came out looking at blue light exposure and puberty onset. All right, so the summary of the study was published in the Daily Mail, and it is titled, Exposure to Blue Light from Phones and Tablets in Childhood Can Increase Production of Reproductive Hormones and Up the Risk of Early-Onset Puberty, and even disrupt future fertility. So this is a study that is being presented this month. This is September 2022, and it's being presented at the 60th Annual European Society for Pediatric Endocrinology. So in this study, this is a rat study. So here's our big disclosure. That headline sounds really nice and catchy, but this is just a study done in rodents, so it has not been done in children yet. But in this study, there were female rats and they were placed into three different groups. One was exposed to normal light cycle and the others were exposed to either six hours or 12 hours of blue light each day. And in both of the blue light groups, the puberty onset occurred significantly earlier than what you would normally expect. So rats in the group that had the highest amount of exposure to blue light, the 12-hour group, they had earlier onset of puberty than the 6-hour group and earlier onset of puberty than the no exposure group. So there was a correlation between amount of blue light exposure and time of puberty onset. The rats in the two blue light groups also had high levels of estrogen and luteinizing hormone. And these are hormones that control the onset of puberty. In addition, there were changes in the rat's ovarian tissue when they looked at their ovaries afterward. So again, this is a rat study. We can't be sure these findings would correlate in humans, but it is highly concerning because, as you know, this is a generation of kids who are being raised very differently than previous generations. They are consuming tablets and phones. They are being exposed to a lot of blue light. Our concern with blue light is that it is increasing the levels of these reproductive hormones and it's also changing your normal circadian rhythm pattern and changing melatonin levels. And we know that melatonin is really important in your hormones. We've been seeing an increase in earlier rates of puberty just across the board in kids now than we used to. There are a lot of different hypotheses for this Most of them have been hormonal exposure and foods or toxic exposure through environmental toxins, but this is a study showing us that it actually may be due to some of the blue light exposure that people are now seeing. So I think this is just further evidence. Like we see our ophthalmology friends talk about all the time that screen time and tablets and blue lights are not great for developing eyes. They're also not great for developing brains and ovaries, and they can cause precocious puberty or early onset of puberty. All right, so let's just start at the beginning when it comes to sperm health and how sperm is made, because it's important to know how sperm is made if you want to understand the semen analysis. What you're going to find if you've listened to prior videos or if you have listened to me talk about the menstrual cycle, it is very similar to how females make eggs and make hormones. Really, it's the same hormones, FSH and LH, which are induced in pulses by GnRH, gonadotropin-releasing hormone. These are hormones in the brain. The hypothalamus talks to the pituitary gland. Pituitary gland sends out FSH and LH, which helps the testes make both testosterone and both sperm. So they are made together. The brain has no idea if you're making sperm or not, but it can sense if you make testosterone because it feeds back to the brain. So the brain has testosterone receptors. And if you're making testosterone in an appropriate amount, the brain is happy and sends out enough FSH and LH to keep it going at that level. Now, if your brain senses a ton of testosterone, it's going to say, oh my gosh, we don't need to make any more. And then it's going to start sending out less stimulation and telling your body to make less testosterone. And this is why when you hear people say testosterone is like male birth control, because when you're using testosterone, exogenously, whether it's creams or gels or injectable, you are now no longer sending out the signals from your brain to make testosterone. Very much like how a person with ovaries, if they take birth control pills, which have ethanol estradiol in them, estrogen, estrogen tells the brain, hey, we've got eggs growing. We don't need another one. And therefore, the brain doesn't send out FSH. So it's a very similar thing. But in the testes, what it results in is both a decrease in production of testosterone but also a decrease in the production of sperm. And it's one of the top causes of something called azospermia, or having no sperm, is taking testosterone. And I will tell you, I see this, my gosh, I mean, at least every month, if not every week. Somebody was put on testosterone, even though they were trying to get pregnant. And maybe they had symptoms, maybe their libido was low, maybe they did have low testosterone. But giving testosterone to somebody who's trying to get pregnant is going to make their sperm count zero or close to zero, essentially male birth control. So if you have low T, which is a real medical diagnosis, and it can result in some symptoms like fatigue, weight gain, difficulty with erection, ejaculation, low libido, you actually need to be given medication that is going to tell the brain to make more testosterone. So that is not T. The medication that you take in this scenario is actually going to be either FSHLH, HCG, or even things like Clomid. But essentially, you need to have the brain sending out more hormones and not less. So big caveat right from the beginning, if you don't listen to the whole thing, biggest takeaway, testosterone use is bad for sperm production. Now, sperm are made in the testes every single day. So interesting because unlike an ovary, In which you have all the eggs you are ever going to have. You run out of eggs over time. When you're out, you're in menopause. The end. The testes have germ cells in them that make brand new sperm. 100 to 200 million sperm are made every single day. It takes about 70 days to complete sperm development and then about 12 to 21 days for those sperm to move through the reproductive tract, meaning go through the epididymis, the vas deferens, and be in the ejaculate sample. So the sperm that we see on a semen analysis, those are reflecting the prior three months of life. It is not reflecting any time period before, and it's not necessarily reflective of the future because things can change, and sperm is highly influenced by the environment. Sperm are quite fragile, and so that is both good and bad. cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word for one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high-quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. Know my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust, Get 25% off your first month at Ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's Ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. Another common question I get is, well, don't men or people with testes go through menopause also, don't eventually they stop making sperm. Yes, testosterone production and sperm production eventually do stop with age and the quality of that sperm decreases over time, but it is in a much longer age span than it is for people with ovaries. So the most profound change is when a male partner is over 50 years old. We do see five times longer for somebody to get pregnant when men are over the age of 45 versus under the age of 25, even adjusting for whatever the female partner ages. So we do see a decrease in the quality, the genetic normalcy, the ability for that sperm to function as men get older, but they still do make it. And that is one thing that keeps fertility so much extended for people with testes than it does for people with ovaries. The thing about age is that we do see an increase in genetic abnormalities and both fragmentation or damage of the DNA in the testes in that sperm sample with age. So advanced paternal age has been associated with a new increase in something we call autosomal dominant mutations. This is where if you have a spontaneous new mutation, a child, if they get that disease, is going to have it. We think this is likely due to decrease in antioxidant enzymes if people get older and just more fragility and overall life and decreased quality of sperm. Overall, these things are so rare because autosomal dominant diseases are rare, but we do see an increase in autodom diseases like marfans or dwarfism as the age of the male partner gets older. And we also see an increase in miscarriage as the male partner gets older as well. All right. Well, let's talk about the semen analysis. So, who should get a semen analysis? Number 1, anybody who meets the definition of infertility. That is, you are under age 35 and you've been trying to get pregnant for 1 year, you are over age 35, but have been trying to get pregnant for 6 months, or you're 40 and trying to conceive. If the female partner is of those ages, you qualify in for infertility. The other person who should get a semen analysis done is if we know it's going to be hard for you as a couple to get pregnant. Maybe we know that the female partner has low ovarian reserve or has PCOS or endometriosis, maybe periods are irregular. Those are really good reasons to get a semen analysis so you have a full picture of what you are dealing with. Also, if we have any of those symptoms of low testosterone, so again, weight gain, fatigue, irritability, decreased libido, decrease in ability for erection, ejaculation, those may be warning signs that our natural testosterone is lower. And because sperm is dependent on local production of testosterone, we might have a lower sperm count. I will speak for myself and for most fertility doctors out there, essential part of the process. In no way will I treat a patient unless I have semen analysis if one of the partners makes sperm because so often there will be something wrong even though everything looks right. When you collect a semen analysis, typically we want abstinence, so no ejaculation, masturbation, intercourse for two to three days before the collection. It's really important to get a complete sample, meaning if all of the sample does not get in the cup, cancel it and reschedule it. You're not going to get an accurate result. Don't go through the motions. And You need to ask about how you're going to get results. Is it going to be put in a portal, emailed, a phone call, sent back to your doctor? How how are you going to find out what the results are? Is anybody going to go over the results with you? Those are some really important things. When we look at a semen analysis, the big four factors that we care about the most are volume, concentration, motility, and morphology or shape of the sperm. So when we look at these normal ranges, these are gonna help us understand what is going on. So let's just break down some of these and then I'll talk about a few other things the semen analysis can tell us. Now, it's really important if you get a semen analysis, you look at the key for the lab where you are because some of them are not actually set to these standards. These are the overall standards, but every lab is a different, just like the reference range on any test can be different. So you need to look at each of these values independently and not just take somebody's word for it that everything is normal. So a normal volume of sperm is at least 1.5 milliliters. The volume comes from the seminal vesicles. So, low volume doesn't necessarily mean there's low sperm production, but it could be. So, it could be low production, but it also could be obstruction or even something called retrograde ejaculation. This is where, when ejaculation happens, some of the sperm actually backtrack and go into the bladder or the urinary system. So, that's very interesting. Low volume can also throw off other results. So, top thing causing low volume, collection issue, or spillage. Nothing else is going to be accurate. That's why I said earlier, you've got to tell them if you spilled or just cancel and redo the test. Now, the pH of the sample should be greater than 7.2. So it is alkaline. And that's because the vagina is acidic. I want you to think about the volume not as complete sperm, meaning the goal of that ejaculate volume is to protect that sperm Inside the acidic environment of the vagina. And what happens is the sperm swim out of that alkaline seminal fluid sample and they go into the cervix. And then the stuff that comes out after you potentially have intercourse is not sperm. It's just that other seminal fluid and stuff. It's just the stuff that protected the sperm in the vagina. But if you have blocked ejaculatory ducts or you have obstruction like congenital bilateral absence of the vas deferens, you'll have a low volume and a Low pH sample, which is a big warning sign that there's some obstructive process. There is something called congenital bilateral absence of the vas deferens, CBAVD. This is actually a birth defect and it is associated with cystic fibrosis carriers. So, cystic fibrosis is an autosomal recessive mutation, meaning you carry it, and usually you're not going to have any symptoms if you're a carrier. It's when two parents are both carriers that we really worry about. A child inheriting both copies of the recessive gene and then having cystic fibrosis, but it's false that carriers are really asymptomatic because in this context, yes, they don't have any lung symptoms, but they might not have vas deferens. Therefore, they may have no sperm in the sample. So, azoospermia with low volume and an acidic pH is a huge warning sign that. You might have CBABD, and then we always go and we want to check and make sure we're screening for cystic fibrosis. So, just a little nugget. All right. So, another thing that we look at is concentration. This is the production of sperm, it's measured in millions per milliliter, and the probability of conceiving increases with increasing concentrations. So, typically, the low end of normal, that's what tests are telling you low end of normal, the low end of normal is 15 million per milliliter. So, if you're over that, you meet normal. But the probability of conceiving increases until you get to about 40 to 50 million per milliliter, and then it's about the same. So, 50 million per ml is not really any different than 300 million per ml. But between 15 to 50, there is a difference. Oligospermia is low counts. So, this is where you have less than 15 million per milliliter. This should warrant an endocrine evaluation. Is there low testosterone? Is this due to low hormonal stimulation? Is there a thyroid issue, a prolactin issue? This may be able to improve, but it could take three to six months because that's the life cycle of sperm. And you're going to need to see a reproductive specialist or urologist who could start medications, not testosterone, but other medications to stimulate the brain to send out more FSH and LH and stimulate sperm production. Sometimes this actually can't be improved. So I don't always just try meds and wait. It'll depend on the full picture age of female partner, ovarian reserve, other medical problems, goal number of children, but that's sometimes one potential option. Now, azuspermia is zero sperm in the ejaculate. So this is either no production, so the body is not making sperm. This can be due to exogenous testosterone or testosterone failure, like testicular failure, or just complete obstruction, like we gave the example of congenital bilateral absence of the vas deferens or prior vasectomy. Now, Motility is the next, and normal motility is about 40%. This is the number of forward-moving sperm. Again, that's the low end of normal. The probability conception does increase between 40 to about 60%, and then 60% and more, everything's about even. Low motility can be due to infection, lifestyle, environment, toxins, etc. We do a value called the total modal sperm count. Volume times concentration times motility. And what we really like to see for optimal conception is 40 million total moving sperm. When you have less than this, you may or may not be suitable for medications, for an IUI, or for IVF. But so calculating that value is really giving us an idea if there are enough sperm to get the job done. So one thing I always say is, well, I hear everybody else say it only takes one sperm and kind of yes, But really it takes an army. So I want you to think if it takes 40 million moving sperm to all get to the egg and push on it with enough force to crack it open and let that one little sperm inside. So they really have to work together. And that's why low counts make it so much harder, often not impossible, but so much harder to get pregnant. Morphology is another factor, and this is the shape of the sperm. Now, so important to know, sperm morphology can be measured in a couple different ways. One is called WHO, the World Health Organization, and one is a strict morphology called Kruger. Must look to see what is going on on the test. So meaning if your lab says it's 4%, that may be normal if it's strict and that's very low if it's WHO. So you need to see what the reference range for normal is. The strict sperm morphology is really the best available predictor of a sperm function. What's the sperm's function? carry DNA in its head, swim to where the egg is, fertilize the egg. Sperm quality is highly influenced by environment and lifestyle the most. So things like smoking cigarettes and marijuana and heavy alcohol use, probably diet and environmental toxins, we know sitting in a hot tub in a sauna, those things all change the morphology of the sperm. Now, conventional fertilization, rates, So if we think about when you do IVF, there's two different types of fertilization. One is just putting eggs and sperm together in a Petri dish and letting them just mix around. And the other is something called ICSI, intracytoplasmic sperm injection, taking a sperm and putting it in an egg. There have been lots of studies going back and forth, should you do ICSI with a low morphology, but many studies show that conventional fertilization rates are highest when there's a high percentage of normal sperm, like 14% or higher, and that they are worse when it's 4% of sperm or lower. And very often, you'll see us recommend ICSI if you have abnormal morphology of your sperm. Some studies have shown higher fertilization rates, but no difference in live birth rates or blastocyst formation. That being said, if you've ever been through IVF, it's a numbers game. And the more you can fertilize means the more available to become a blastocyst or to be normal or to become a live birth there are. So... So I don't really love the idea of settling for something that potentially may give us a lower fertilization rate if our goal is to try to get as many embryos as possible. So uh, if there's any factor that's low on the semen analysis, ICSI is the answer. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan, it's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash aaw and click get started. Then use the code aaw at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only five dollars. Thank you Apostrophe for sponsoring this episode. Now the semen analysis can tell you a few other things. One of them is round cells. Round cells are literally that. They're round little cells that are indistinguishable. They can be immature sperm, epithelial cells, Red blood cells or white blood cells. Very often the semen analysis cannot differentiate between the types of cells. And so we treat them with an anti-inflammatory medication and antibiotics. And then we repeat the semen analysis after two to three weeks of treatment. So that's something that can come up. There's also a test that honestly is controversial called DNA sperm fragmentation. If we think about what this is, not routine and a normal semen analysis. Typically, it is a test on an ejaculated sample of sperm, but it's not in the routine. It has to be either sent off or specifically ordered. The idea is that impaired integrity of the DNA inside the sperm of the head causes increased fragmentation if you go and you analyze it. Now, you can't check the DNA of a sperm and then go fertilize with it because, again, you kill it. But you can look at the sperm sample of a whole, and say, does this sample have more fragmented DNA in the sperm than it should? And what we're seeing is higher levels of DNA fragmentation associated with lower success rates with IVF and miscarriage. Now the original studies were looking at, should you use DNA fragmentation for ICSI? But now ICSI is quite common because of genetic testing or because of the other male factors or the more strict parameters. And so Some people are trying to decide what to do with this result. I don't usually test it in everybody. I do if we have history of kind of prior outcomes that are not great in a cycle, but not really to distinguish if we should do ICSI or not, but potentially to see if we go in and get sperm from the testes, like an aspirated sperm sample, could it have lower fragmentation than sperm that's ejaculated? Again, new science, new literature, but we do think that we see increased fragmentation, With heat exposure, smoking, environmental pollutants and toxins, chemotherapy, defective germ cell maturation, and just oxidative stress or inflammation in whole. So this is showing us that likely your environment impacts the sperm, which is something we all know, but sometimes you'll see people really gloss over. And so again, if I just want to re-harp on a few last points. Medications will depend on what the semen analysis shows. So I will often have somebody say, well, can you just give me medications to make that better? Maybe, maybe not. So it'll depend on the cause. If you're taking testosterone, you should stop it. You should look and see if there's thyroid or prolactin abnormalities. And you can augment HCG, Clomid, HMG, or FSH and may help boost sperm production if numbers are an issue. Again, that usually takes us about three to six months to see results. So if we're older, if we need IVF anyway, our tubes are blocked. This may not be worth waiting for. And now you want to look at lifestyle changes that you can do as well. Can we take antioxidants, reduce inflammation, avoid exposures to heat and toxins? Those things are going to be really important if we see motility or morphology issues. The last kind of bit I want to say is that really when you look at sperm, there's not that many choices for what you can do. So when you look at male factor, we look at lifestyle changes and potentially medications to improve concentration. You will look at other abnormalities. Could there be a seal, which is essentially a varicose vein in the testes, but it brings a lot of heat to the testes and can impair sperm production or quality that may warrant a surgical removal. And our treatments that we really offer are an IUI or IVF. IUI is intrauterine insemination. This is where you take the sperm. It's ejaculated. You time it with ovulation, either with ovulation induction and a trigger or using ovulation kits. It doesn't really matter. And then you put that sperm in the uterus. I use the terrible analogy all the time. It's like getting your best players and putting them further down the field, but it will never overcome or outperform female age. So it's never going to exceed the maternal age-related chance of conception for that age. Success rates are going to be highest when you have higher morphology levels, or you have at least 10 million sperm after the wash, and that's because you lose about half the sperm in the wash process. So I don't offer IUI to people with very low sperm counts because it's not enough sperm for that little army that we talked about. I think IUI is best for donor sperm, what we call absolute male factor. So there's no male in the relationship. If there's a mild male factor, like maybe a low motility is my favorite one. And then it's a potential option for unexplained infertility, although it's really not the gold standard. IVF is the other option. And IVF is in vitro fertilization. This is when we're getting eggs to grow and taking them out of the body. We can either do conventional fertilization, as we talked about earlier, eggs and sperm in a petri dish together, or we do ICSI, intracytoplasmic sperm injection injecting one sperm into one egg. You can couple that with a sperm extraction. If there's obstruction, very low count, or concern for maybe DNA sperm fragmentation or poor prior cycles. IVF is the only thing that will ever exceed your age-related chance of conception. Age still matters a lot. It's going to dictate how many genetically normal eggs we're going to get, but it's the only thing that gets us higher in that process. So those are the options your doctor is going to be talking to you about. Is the sperm sample suitable for intercourse, for IUI, for IVF? Do we need further workup? Are our hormones okay? Will any medications help? Are there lifestyle modifications? Do we potentially need a surgical procedure? And that's kind of the gamut of what we can do. I hope this helps you understand sperm and male factor. And now I'm going to answer some of our questions for fertility's sake, FFS. This is our weekly QA. You can ask these questions on my Instagram at Natalie CrawfordMD. I answer questions every Monday. So you'll see a question box and feel free to ask away. Some will be answered on Instagram and some will be answered here. And you can also call the voicemail. I am going to be doing episodes specifically answering the voicemail questions. So much higher chance of getting your question answered if you call the voicemail. You've already received some great questions. 657-229-3672. 657 657-229. 229 three, six, seven, two. That is the voicemail number. All right. Question number one, polyps in the uterus, do they have effect on fertility? This is a great question. I do have an entire episode on the uterus and the endometrium and I talk about polyps in it, but essentially a polyp is typically a benign piece of endometrial tissue that is projecting it's a growth inside the uterine cavity polyps can increase inflammation and decrease implantation rates and so when we find a polyp we always want to take it out two reasons one make sure it's not cancer one time how i found a polyp in a patient that i was really surprised was cancerous but it could be so you always want to take it out and check and secondarily because we want to improve those success rates Sometimes polyps come from increased exogenous estrogen exposure or just natural estrogen, like PCOS patients often have a higher risk of polyps. And some people just make polyps. So it's not always your fault if you are one of those people that makes polyps. Do not let that play a role. All right. Second question is Do women with PCOS get more embryos with IVF since we have more follicles? Very often the answer is yes. So women with PCOS, can stimulate more eggs to grow in an IVF cycle. And when you're doing IVF, you're limited by how many eggs are available in a given month. And people with PCOS have more eggs available every month. Now, old IVF techniques, or if we're living in this post-row world and can't do all the stuff that we have modern availability for, which is not the case yet, but we're fearful of, People with PCOS had really poor outcomes, and that is because your estrogen levels would rise really high. We didn't have good freezing techniques of embryos. We were doing fresh embryo transfers, and we didn't have good protocols to prevent you from going into something called ovarian hyperstimulation. This would lead us to trigger patients with PCOS really early and lead to very poor outcomes. But now patients with PCOS are on high responder protocols and we are using triggers and we should be doing freeze-all approaches. So you may not get a fresh transfer, but you're going to have many more embryos available to you in the process. And so overall, our success rates are much higher and your yield as far as embryos per cycle are typically greater than that of your age-matched peers. And so that is overall great. Can the lining be too thick with a frozen embryo transfer? Well, Maybe, maybe not. As long as it's organized and pretty looking, which we call trilaminar, that means it's grown with great organization to estrogen exposure. I don't have an upper limit of normal. Now, I want to make sure I don't see any irregularities. If it's homogenous or not trilaminar, I'm not going to transfer, no matter how thick it is. And we want to make sure it doesn't look like there's potentially polyps or something else in the lining. So, I don't cancel for a thick, pretty lining, and most people I know would not either. Everybody really makes a different level of a lining, and so you should be comparing to what you got in your IVF cycle as a good example for what we should be able to get. All right. How soon can you start trying to get pregnant after a chemical pregnancy or a five-week loss? Right away, y'all. i let people get pregnant right away. If it's a chemical, by definition, you get a positive test, then a negative test. Hormone levels drop. You get a period. Do not pass go. Try again. Early pregnancy study in the New England Journal of Medicine many years ago showed you have higher conception rates in the months following those chemical pregnancies. So go for it. If you have a loss where you need a miscarriage management, we do want to make sure that HCG level gets down to zero. So that's not quite a chemical. But if you have a DNC or you need to take mesoprostol or you pass a pregnancy normally, but your levels were very high... We usually recommend waiting until you get a negative pregnancy test or your HCG level has been checked in as zero. And that's because it's confirming for us that we don't have any retained products of conception. Next is what do I need to do to prepare for an FET after a C-section? Every clinic is going to be a little bit different, but I'm going to make patients wait about a year from birth till we can do the transfer. That way, the uterus has given enough time to heal up after that C-section so that it won't have higher risks in a subsequent pregnancy. Now, I also don't like to transfer two embryos in people who've had prior uterine surgery. I don't want to risk rupturing the uterus by over descending it. I almost never transfer two embryos anymore, so that really doesn't matter because newer technology and modern IVF practice is for single embryo transfer with or without genetic testing. But so many patients are doing genetic testing. So that's really a moot point. But that may be something that your OBGYN brings up or your fertility doctor. All right. What is the average time from initial consult with a reproductive endocrinologist to the first embryo transfer? That's a really loaded question. For the most part, it's going to take, let's just say, you know you need IVF and you're fast tracking it, about a month to get all the stars lined up lapse back, get in for a follicle count, get your protocol, get your meds ordered, have a class. And then you're going to have to go through the protocol of suppression stimulation, get your eggs out, presuming you're doing a frozen embryo transfer. That's what I'm answering here. You're then going to get the uterus ready, do the protocol for the FET and put an embryo inside. I usually counsel patients. It's about four months from start of your IVF protocol, your suppression, until you get your positive pregnancy test. So from initial appointment at clinic until a positive pregnancy test, presuming you're doing IVF and a frozen embryo transfer, let's call it five months. You're not coming to the office tons of time. You guys are often just waiting for the right time in your cycle for a medication to work to get results. The two-week wait, you still can't get away with that. So just time adds up. Is IVF the best option when high AMH is precluding letrozole from inducing ovulation? for the most part yes ivf is going to definitely be the best option can you sometimes do gonadotropins or injectable fsh with or without letrozole to try to get a follicle to induce ovulation yeah but every patient's going to be different and the big risk here is high order multiples john and kate plus 8 so it might not be safe for you, and every patient will be unique based on your age, your AFC, your AMH. So definitely have a talk with your doctor. But for sure, if you don't ovulate with letrozole, IVF is the next best option, and that's definitely what I recommend. Are at-home sperm analysis kits accurate? Maybe, maybe not. So some of them definitely are. Here's my big thing. You need to know what the test is telling you and what your goal. Some of them are literally a positive test, like a pregnancy test. Yep, I see sperm. Nope, I don't see sperm. Some of them are CLIA approved tests that give you morphology and all the information you need. So if you are thinking about an at-home test, I would definitely research which of the factors it is giving you. I would recommend a test that's going to give you an assessment of volume, motility, concentration, and morphology. If it can give you all four of those, you're getting all the data you need from the test. And I know some REIs use some of these send-off tests for their patients, and it can be a great way to improve access to care. All right. Well, I hope you like the answers to some of these questions. As a reminder, you can ask, for fertility's sake, your questions every Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford, MD. Some will be saved and added here. Some will be answered on Instagram. You can also call the voicemail, 657-229-3672. 6572293672 leave a message and we will be doing specific episodes answering those voicemail questions hope this episode helped and thank you so much friends thank you all for listening to as a woman it would mean so much if you could rate review and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every sunday i hope you learned something new And I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here. Part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.